Good morning. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Peter Carlson. Uh, I'm the worship leader here at uh, Hiawatha. I'm also on the, uh, the elder team, the overseer team. Get my remote out here. Um, and uh, every so often the elders get a chance to preach. Uh, I think everybody else has done it so far this year except for me. So uh, it's my turn and, uh, and I'm really excited uh, to preach. I don't get to do it that often, but when I do, I really enjoy it. Um, and uh, I know many of you, there are plenty of you that I don't know, um, as our church has grown over the last uh, 11 years. And, uh, and so for those of you who don't know who I am, uh, Peter Carlson, worship leader, I covered that already. Um, and uh, I'm going to preach an open mic sermon today. And uh, before I get there, I'm going to just introduce you to who I am, for those that don't know me. Um, that's me. That's my wife, Becky. Uh, she's great. If you know her, you already know that. She's great. That's my son, Elliot. He's uh, going into second grade. And then Zachary down there going into first grade. There's a picture of us uh, just when we crossed the border on a trip that we took earlier this year to Canada. We drove from here to um, just outside Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. We, we did it in three days, so it's not that impressive, but it's still kind of impressive um, that we did it with, with those boys. But they did a really great job. This is us just across the border in Saskatchewan. And uh, there's a lot of wheat up there. A lot of wheat. There are pictures of wheat everywhere, too. It's really a... It's like... When we drove through northern North Dakota, I've said this to a couple of people, we drove through northern North Dakota, and it's just very flat, and there's lots of fields, and there's like no buildings, and we get to the border, and we're like, oh, it's Canada, this is going to be so cool. We get over like, actually, it's more North Dakota. It just goes on and on and on, um, and uh, yeah, it's funny. So today, since I'm preaching an open mic sermon, I thought it would be appropriate for the, the worship leader at Hiawatha to preach about worship. So I'm going to preach topically on, on the topic of worship, what it is, um, what, it, what it should mean to us as believers, um, and, uh, and kind of go from there. So it would, it would be good to just sort of define what worship is to start out, if you're not familiar with that word. Um, I'm sure most of you probably are. Um, is, it, is it like a genre of music? Many people say that to me, like there's pop music, rock music, hip-hop, worship, country, um, not, it's not really a genre of music. It's kind of become that. Like, you can look it up on Spotify as a genre, and it, it, sure, it kind of is, but not, not really. And, uh, and this isn't going to be a sermon just about music. I would love to, to talk for a really long time about, worship, about music, and, uh, and if you want to talk afterwards and try to digest the new Arcade Fire album or something, just let me know. I'm happy to do that. But this isn't going to be a sermon just about worship, because worship, about music, because worship isn't just music. Um, it's much more. Well, is it, is it singing in church? Is that, is that the essence of what worship is? Well, yes, kind of, but there, again, there's more to it. Um, many, many people might think worship is like a ritual. If you've been familiar with maybe other, other religions who talk about worship, there's, it's very ritual-based. That There's these things that you have to do, and you have to execute the steps, um, and then, then you've worshiped. And um, Sure, there's some ritual to worship, too. We'll, we'll see that. But it's, it's not all about ritual either. So what, what is it? What is the definition? And so many people open talks like this. We're like, let's get out Webster's Dictionary and define worship. I, don't, I didn't do that. But I'll tell you that the word worship comes from the word worth and then the word ship. So ascribing worth to something or someone um, and making that part of who they are, especially um, when it concerns a deity. So, so a god or the god in, in our in our context today, there's only one God. So specifically, worship is talking about what does it mean to ascribe worth to God? 
telling God or demonstrating to God that he's worth something to you, worth something in your life. So with that broad of a definition, that should help to just expand your mind beyond music specifically or ritualistic type things um, into, into a more holistic approach that worship involves many different things that point us towards God and expressing his worth, what he is worth to us. So we are going to start by reading through Psalm 96, as you saw in your worship folder. Um, and I think it's a good idea to sort of contextualize ourselves with what worship is in the Bible. And we're going to start by doing that through the book of Psalms. So Psalms is the longest book in the Bible. It's pretty much smack dab in the middle of the Bible. If you, if you try to open your Bible to exactly the middle, you'll probably hit Psalms. Um, it's, a, it's a really long book, 150 chapters, but it's a collection of songs and poems and things like that that are about worship. And a lot of them take different slants to get there. So you'll, you'll have a, a psalm that starts out as sort of a complaint to God, but in the end, it almost always makes a turn back towards worshiping God and expressing his worth to the person um, who was writing that song or that poem. So Chris has preached on a few psalms this summer. I'm not calling it a psalms sermon because we're kind of just going to start here and then branch out. But um, there's a lot of rich theology to, to be found in the Psalms. Um, and if you go to a lot of Christian churches, you'll, you'll find that we sing a lot of songs that are basically stolen lyrics from the Psalms because they're just, they're just really good. They hold up over time. Um, and uh, it's a great place to start in talking about worship. So we're going to start there. We're going to read Psalm 96. So feel free to open a pew Bible or your app or just follow on the screen as we read this. It's not very long, um, but it's going to get us into, into the mindset that I want us to be in as we move forward with talking about worship. So here we go. Psalm 96, starting verse 1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. So I picked Psalm 96 to set the stage today because it's very much about the worth of God, the worth-ship element of what worship is. Ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due his name. Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. It's a really great worship song, right? It talks a lot about singing, especially at the beginning. And it's got phrases like, declare his glory among the nations. The, the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. And then verse 9, which is where the title of the sermon comes from, says, here's how you should worship the Lord. You should worship the Lord 
in the splendor of holiness. That's a cool phrase. What does that mean? What does it mean? It says, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. You could put that another way. Get out your thesaurus. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. The beauty of his holiness. Or maybe it would make more sense for us today to say it. Worship God beholding the beauty of his perfection. That's what holiness means. The idea of holiness comes from his perfection, his spotlessness. Worship, worship God beholding the beauty of God's perfect love for us. So we're going to work today to unpack a little of what, what does that look like? What does it look like to worship God beholding that beauty of his perfection, the splendor of his holiness? So to do that, we're going to start by looking at some examples of worship in the Bible. It's a good place to start. We're going to look first in the Old Testament at some examples of people, characters from the Old Testament, real people who really did live, and what was, what was worship for them? What did it look like? What are some stories um, that bring out uh, worship for us that we can take as an example and then, uh, and then move forward? So we're going to look at worship in the Old Testament. Just a few quick examples um, to look at to get at this idea a little more. So we'll jump around here just for a second. I'm going to touch on a few different characters from the Old Testament. So first, Abraham. If you do a word search uh, in the Bible and look for the word worship, the first place it comes up is actually Genesis 22. So Genesis 22, we preached on Genesis not too long ago. Um, and this was a really interesting story to preach on because here's this character of Abraham. He's this guy that God called from a faraway land and said, I'm going to be your God, Abraham. I'm going to bring you from your home to a new home in modern-day Israel. I'm going to set you up there. I'm going to be your God. And then I'm going to start blessing you. I'm going to start giving you lots of children. You're going to have so many descendants that you won't even be able to count them all. And I'm going to bless every nation of the world through your family. And Abraham's like, okay, there's just a problem. And the problem is that my wife and I are extremely old, beyond childbearing years. I can't have children. So that seems sort of strange for you to say that you're going to give me all these descendants. Um, but God fulfills that promise and gives him a son named Isaac, and when Isaac is a young boy, Genesis 22, God speaks to Abraham again and he says, Abraham, I want you to, to go on a trip outside of your, your camp. Bring your son Isaac. I want you to make a sacrifice to me. I want you to, to kill something and burn it as an as act of worship to me. And, and your sacrifice is going to be your son Isaac. And Abraham had to wrestle with that, right? So God is saying, I want you to, to kill the promised son that I just gave you. But... Abraham decides that he is going to do it. He has faith in God, that God knows what he's doing in this request. So he brings Isaac and he brings some servants on this trip a little ways out. Um, and then where the word worship comes in is he tells his servants, you guys stay here with the, with the camels or whatever. Isaac and I are going to go over there and worship. And when he says that, really he's the only one at this point who knows what that means. He's going to take Isaac and worship by sacrificing his son. So that was going to be an act of worship. If you read on in the story, that doesn't happen. When he's about to do it, God intervenes and says, actually, don't do it. Don't kill your son. There's a ram nearby that's stuck in this bush. I want you to take the ram. That's going to be your sacrifice. And your son, I want you to worship with him with this ram. So God gives this huge act of grace to Abraham. And through Abraham's obedience, um, he is, he's being impressed with this idea that an ultimate sacrifice 
a much more meaningful sacrifice that would really hit him in the heart would be to allow his son to die, which casts vision forward to what Jesus is going to do later on, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But think about this act now of Abraham and Isaac, who Abraham had this idea that I'm going to go over here away from my servants because I don't really want them to see what's going to happen right now. And I'm going to worship God in extreme grief and sadness because my son is dead. But instead, when they have the ram, they sacrifice this ram, they worship God in what had to be relief and joy that God has said, no, your son will live, this ram will die in his place, and this is a grace towards you. What a, what a joy-filled time of worship and relief-filled time of worship that would be as God has, or Abraham has seen God provide a sacrifice and spare this promised son. That would be an amazing time of worship. So that's an example of Abraham. You fast forward a little bit in the Old Testament, you get to Moses, a very famous character. Moses um, is the leader of the people of Israel who are enslaved in Egypt. He advocates for them, and eventually they're, they're allowed to go. They're freed from their slavery, and they, they set off into the wilderness with Moses as their leader. They come to the Red Sea. The Egyptians start to change their mind. They come after them with soldiers, and God parts the waters of the Red Sea, right? You've heard this story. The people walk through on dry land to the other side of the Red Sea, and they're relieved, but then they turn around and the Egyptians are coming through as well. And their, their relief that they've made it through is crushed because they realize, well, the Egyptians can do exactly what we just did, and they're going to either kill us or bring us back to slavery. But that's when God allows the waters to come back, destroying the Egyptians, and all of this is like literally right in front of the Israelites. So they see all of this. They see God, his salvific work, saving his people, bringing them through and then destroying their enemies. They didn't do anything. <laughs> they just walked through. And, uh, and what happens immediately after that? Moses and his sister stand up and they start singing. They start dancing. It says that there's a huge celebration. They're worshiping God through song, through dance, um, as a response to what they have just seen of God saving them, destroying their enemies. They're giving God credit for that deliverance. They're not all going and mobbing Moses and slapping him on the back, like, you did it! I can't believe you somehow did all that with your magic stick. No, no, no. They know that it's God who did this, and they worship in joy out of a response for that. And then David, David wrote many of the Psalms, uh, including the one that we just saw. He has, he's an author from uh, Psalm 96. Wrote many of those psalms. He wrote many worship songs. He was a musician. He was also a king. Um, and so many of his songs are full of praise, full of joy. But many are, are not that way. They're, they're, they start out as him saying, God, there's people who are after me who are trying to kill me. And it's not fair because they're the bad guys and I'm the good guys. And I'm homeless and they're in the palace. And that's not fair. But at the end of those psalms, they'll, he'll take that turn and say, but I trust you, I will worship you, you are my God, and I trust that you are in control of these situations. And the reason I put 1 Chronicles 16 here, you can look this up on your, old, on your own time, but that is where Psalm 96 comes from. It's actually basically written word for word in 1 Chronicles 16 is Psalm 96. And it's this time where David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant, which is the symbolic presence of God, back into the city of Israel after it's, it's been captured by the Philistines and all kinds of stuff has happened. And he's bringing it back to the city. And there's this huge celebration. And David 
breaks out in song and asks others to do the same, and, and one of the things that they sing is Psalm 96, um, telling people, hey, families of the nation of Israel, praise God because he's bringing his presence back to our capital city. This is a sign of victory um, and, and all that goes with it. So the people sing and they dance, they celebrate this victory that God has won on their behalf over their enemies. It's very similar to Moses and the Israelites. And then there's another one, another example from the Old Testament that we can look at, and that's the character of Job. So the character of Job, right in the beginning of the book of Job, a lot of really, really, really terrible things happen to him in his life. He's, he's basically, he's at his house, and a servant comes up and says, Job, I got bad news. There's a huge fire in your field and all your crops are destroyed. And then another servant comes up right after that and says, Job, I got some really bad news. All your livestock got sick and died. So he was very rich and now it's like, you're, you're pretty poor now. That happened really fast and I'm sorry. And then a third servant comes in and says, Job, all your kids and all their wives and all their husbands were in a house having a meal and the house fell on them and everyone died. So... Job is like confronted with these three things right after, one after another. And what is his response to hearing all this terrible, terrible news? Two things from Job 1, 20 and 21. So this is his response right after that. Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell down on the ground and worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away Blessed be the name of the Lord. So Job feels the weight. He's not, he's not just unfeeling and able to like, well, I guess I'll worship. That's bad news. No, no, no. He's, he is extremely, extremely grieved to hear this news. We all would be. He's got terrible news. So he does mourn. He allows that grief to live in his heart, but he allows himself to feel that grief and still worship God. So that's the response that he has. Just like the response of seeing God saving his people and doing these miraculous things to save them, the response to these terrible things happening to Job is still to worship. So while those people are running to God in joy and victory to worship him, Job is still running to God, but in grief, in pain, in deep loss, but still to worship, still to tell God, you are still worth something to me. That's pretty amazing. Job had faith that God was in control of this situation. Despite his sorrow, despite the horrible things that have happened, he still has faith that God is in control, just like the people had faith that God would continue to save them and be their leader because they had just seen him destroy their enemies before. So Job is not singing and dancing here. Job is crying out in prayer to God in worship, out of his grief, out of his pain and sorrow. But both are responses to things that have happened, responses to, to stimuli in their lives, right? So it's not just about singing or dancing. It's not about performing rituals to God. Job shows that. So as the Old Testament goes on, you get into some of the prophets at the end of the Old Testament, it becomes pretty clear that people who are really good at performing the rituals of worship, doing sacrifices and all of these types of things, they begin to rely strictly on those rituals, strictly on those acts of worship, but they neglect the heart of what worship is. In 1 Samuel 16, 
The prophet Samuel says something really interesting. This is when he's kind of shopping for a king and people are bringing him people like, this could be the king. He's pretty tall and strong. And, and Samuel says, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God cares about the heart, okay? And that becomes even more apparent in Isaiah 29. This is a, a prophecy from the prophet Isaiah. And this is really interesting. So listen to what God says. The Lord, and the Lord said, because this people draw near to me, with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. So God is looking with judgment on people who are doing this kind of thing, that are relying on their ritualistic acts of worship and the outward physicality that worship can, can involve, but their heart is not in it. They are not believing God in their hearts, but they're putting on this front of the acts of worship that people see, but that God looks at their heart. So the people are very good. Many of them were very good at keeping the rituals year after year, the right sacrifices on the right days, reciting the right prayers, but they weren't turning their hearts towards God. And he has this prophecy of judgment on them. So when worship becomes more about ourselves and less about what God is worth to us, then it's not worship at all. It's about God's worth. It's not about what we are doing. It's not about us. The acts of worship are not about us. It's about God, what he's done for us. It's about that response that we were seeing in these earlier things. So then the New Testament rolls around. Worship in the New Testament, guess what? It's still about this dichotomy of the body and the heart. There's this great exchange where Jesus comes and talks to the Pharisees. So the Pharisees are these religious rulers of the day, right? They dress in really flashy clothes. They're extremely good. Basically, they have the entire Old Testament memorized, and that's not an understatement. And the Pharisees embodied this problem of the body, of, body acts of worship versus the heart acts of worship. They were really the embodiment of this. And Jesus talks to them and says, you are hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you. And then he quotes that Isaiah verse that we just saw. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So Jesus says, when Isaiah wrote that prophecy, do you know what he was writing about? He was writing about you. You are the ones that he was saying that prophecy about. They would make big shows of praying loudly in public with complicated words that people around them were like, I don't even understand what he's saying, but it must be amazing. And they would do that. They would bring their offerings into the temple basically with a spotlight on them so that everyone could look and see that they were giving such large amounts of money, way more than anyone else could afford to give to the temple. They would make sure everyone saw that. They were bringing glory to themselves because they had such pride in how hard they were working at these physical acts of worship. But they were lying to themselves in these things because their perfectly executed acts of worship were not saving them but in their hearts, they had that belief. As long as I do all of this stuff perfectly, then I will be acceptable to God. That thinking is about worshiping in the perceived beauty and perfection of our own acts of worship and not in the beauty of God's perfection. So that is something that Jesus dealt with very soon in his ministry with talking to these Pharisees. He's seeing it. He's dealing with it. He's talking to them. He says, you're hypocrites. And Isaiah's prophecy was about you. But the end of that Isaiah verse, I'll go back to it for a second. 
There's a dot, 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 right? Their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. So what's going to happen? What is Jesus going to do? What is God going to do? What is the remedy for this kind of self-worship? Is it wrath? Is it punishment? Is Jesus going to make a big show of like ripping off their fancy robe or like knocking their hat off or something? I mean, what's he going to do? What is, what is it? We find out because Isaiah goes on from that spot. So after talking about how this is what these people are doing, they're making it all about the physical, they're nothing about the heart, they don't even believe in me, they're just doing all the motions, it's muscle memory. What, what is it? The next verse in Isaiah says, So, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Isn't that interesting? So Jesus is saying, look, Isaiah 29, 13 is about you Pharisees. But if that's about them, verse 14 is about them too. That God is going to do wonderful things among these people. Wonder upon wonder. Things that are so amazing that wise men won't know how to even deal with it. So what is it? What is that wonderful thing? What is the fulfillment of this this part of the prophecy? What is the wonderful thing that God's going to do? What kills self-worship? What kills misguided ritual? What disarms a belief that we can perform our way with religion into salvation? What is it? Well, it's Jesus Christ. It's himself. It's Jesus Christ. He's, He's here. He has come. He's talking to these Pharisees right now. This is the wonderful thing that God was going to do among the people, among the people of Israel specifically, but among all of us as a human race. And when Jesus is here, it becomes not about the acts of worship, about the ritual. It becomes about the heart, and it becomes about the man himself. It becomes about worshiping Jesus Christ. So, there's another story about Jesus interacting with someone else. He's interacting with a woman from a, from a different area, Samaria. He's on the road. He's passing through her town. He stops because it's the heat of the day. He sits down by a well. His disciples go look for food. And he's just there by himself. When she comes up and she starts talking to him, which was weird because he wasn't supposed to talk to her because there's some separation and there's bad blood between their peoples. They're not supposed to talk. But he asks her, hey, as long as you're pulling up water out of the well, can you get some for me because I'm thirsty too? And she says, fine. And that's when he starts asking her questions and getting to know her. And it's during that conversation that he starts pointing out, well, um, uh, you've been committing serial adultery. And she's like, this is, this is a very strange conversation. And I don't really want to talk about that right now. And so what she does is she starts saying, hey, so it seems like you're a prophet, like you know things about me. Let's talk about religion. So you Jews say that you have to go worship at the temple in Jerusalem. That's the only place you can go. But you also say Samaritans aren't allowed to go there. And so Samaritans are supposed to worship on this mountain over here. But then you say that's wrong. But then we say we should be able to go there. And then there's all this stuff. It's a political, religious issue. What do you say about all that? And she's thinking, like, this will diffuse all that stuff about my personal life because everyone loves to argue about this particular topic. And... So she's really asking about the rituals of worship, right? She's asking about the sacrifices. What about, like, killing animals? Where is that supposed to happen? What about the priests? And, you know, there's all this washing, and you say, like, you're, you're supposed to wash this way, but then Samaritans have to do different stuff, and there's pilgrim, like, you have to go to a certain mountain, and I have to go to a certain mountain. All of that stuff is wrapped up in this big issue. So really her question is, what's the correct way 
stranger prophet guy, what's the correct way to worship? Why don't you riff on that for a while and not, not talk about me anymore? And that's when Jesus starts saying some pretty cool stuff. Starting in verse 21. So after all of that that she says, here's what Jesus says to her. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We, the Jews, worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And then the woman said to him, yeah, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ, and when he comes, he'll tell us all things. He'll explain this stuff to us. I don't understand your answer, but I, I, when Messiah comes, we'll figure it out. And then Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. That's me. I'm the Messiah. That time that's coming, it's now. That time that's coming is now here. I am the one. And Jesus is saying, it's not about that stuff anymore. It's not about, well, we have to go to this mountain, and you have to go to this mountain, and if you don't, you can't really worship, and if you do, you have to kill animals, and you have to spill this blood, you have to do all of this stuff. And Jesus is saying, that time is here now. God is seeking people to worship him who will worship in spirit and in truth wherever they are. It's about me. All those Old Testament psalms of worship are written about Jesus. The guy that that is written about is sitting next to her at a well in Samaria talking about worship. It's so crazy. Jesus is the light of the world and he's chatting with her about how to worship. Where? What rituals? Jesus says, it's me. I'm here. Jesus Christ himself is the splendor of God's perfect holiness. He's walking through Samaria. He's on his way to Jerusalem through his whole ministry. He's heading for Jerusalem because it's at Jerusalem when he dies on the cross that his splendor of his perfect holiness is going to be on full display. And Hebrews talks a lot about that. The whole book of Hebrews is a lot about here's what the Old Testament is saying and here's, I'm going to explain and walk you through how this is related to Jesus Christ. So I'm not going to get into the details and the theology of Hebrews, but I want to bring in this, this point out. This is what that writer says. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, that's Jesus too, then let us draw near with a true heart. Again, it's about the heart. With a true heart in full assurance of faith. How do we get a true heart? With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So in the Old Testament, when they worshipped at the temple, there was this huge thick curtain. They weren't allowed to go through it, and that's where God was. They weren't allowed to go through at all. The Old Testament said, we are sinful people. If we go into the presence of a holy God, the beauty of his perfection will fry us because we are so filthy in our sin. But Hebrews is saying, Jesus died and his blood opened that curtain. His blood, his death, tore that curtain literally in the day. The, the curtain in the temple that day was literally torn. And now we have confidence to enter that place 
to behold the beauty of God's perfection embodied in the man Jesus Christ. So, it's almost like you stand in front of this curtain, and when Jesus dies, the curtain rips, and then Jesus runs out and grabs you. And you're like, whoa, I thought we weren't supposed to touch each other even. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. We can now. Because of my sacrifice, because of my blood, we have a way to Jesus. He runs out to us. We can't go into the Holy of Holies, but he rips the curtain, runs out, and just grabs us and holds us. And when you think about cleanliness and purity, if we're talking about all these Old Testament rituals, we've got to wash in a certain way to even enter the temple. The beauty of God's perfect holiness is such that his purity, when he touches dirty things, the dirty things become clean, not the other way around. Just think about that for a second. One of our kids, I'm not going to say which one, has been on this kick of sort of being really concerned about germs and dirty stuff. Kind of germaphobes type things, right? So when he drops food on the floor, which happens once in a while, maybe every meal, he becomes really concerned of like, I can't eat this now because it fell on the floor and it might have a cat hair on it or something. Like, just wash it off. I was like, yeah, I don't know. I don't think I'm going to eat that anymore. But what if when you dropped a clean carrot stick on the floor of our house, the floor became sparkling clean. Doesn't that sort of twist your brain a little bit? Like, well, we don't have to wash the floor now because we dropped something clean on it. It's fine. Or like if you, your kid brings a, you know, a, a big plate of you know, leftover food into the kitchen and then accidentally scrapes it into the clean side of the dishwasher instead of into the garbage, you're like, every plate in there was clean and it's all dirty. Well, well what if you took one clean plate and you set it on a stack of dirty ones and the dirty ones are perfectly clean? That is what it's like. That is what it's like. It blows my mind. Purity of Jesus is such that when he comes out, he rips the curtain, he runs out, and we're filthy, and he gives us a hug, and we become clean. Just like he literally went to lepers and touched them with his physical hand on their skin, and everyone's like, you are going to get so sick. But the leper becomes healed, not Jesus getting sick. It's the opposite of the way we think about it today. So, never be ashamed, maybe a little sidebar, never be ashamed to bring your filthiness to Jesus. Bring it all. Because the beauty of his perfect holiness is such that when we bring our filthiness to him, because of the blood of Jesus shed on that cross, his touch cleanses us from any unrighteousness and impurity. And also, never be worried about bringing the good news of the gospel into the dirty, filthy places of the world, the places where sin reigns. Bring the message of the gospel into those places because it doesn't go the other way. The purity of God's holiness rushes into those places and can cleanse them. That is the weight that the beauty of his holiness holds for us. And if we want to see, again, the splendor of God's holiness, we look to the man on the cross. That is the place where we see his perfect love displayed, where we can stand in the beam of that light, the light of the world crucified, sacrificed for us, standing in the beam of that light and worshiping as a response to the greatest deliverance that we will ever see or experience. So worship is a response. Worship is a response to something. When Jesus has come to us, which he has, paid the ultimate price to remove our sin from all of his people, we can have joy in that good news and we can worship as a response to that. Just like we talked about responses uh, in the Old Testament stories of worship, 
this great response that we can have to the joy of the gospel. C.S. Lewis is a famous Christian author. He, uh, he wrote one of a, he wrote a kind of a small paper almost about worship where he was getting a little uncomfortable with reading the book of Psalms because of Psalms like 96 where it's almost like the author is imploring people to worship God and C.S. Lewis is like, that's just not a good look. Why does God like need us to worship? Why does he need us to worship? He doesn't really need that, does he? What's the big deal? Is he just vain and selfish? And he's kind of struggling with that, which is an interesting thing to struggle with. We're not going to take too much time to put that aside today, but we're going to, I want to read a quote here. I don't have it on the screen. I'm just going to read this of how C.S. Lewis kind of came to this understanding of what worship and praise really means and what kind of a response it is. So this is the quote. Just listen for a second. But the most obvious fact about praise, he says, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment or approval or the giving of honor, which it is. But I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise, unless shyness or the, the fear of others or boring others is deliberately brought in to check it. But the world rings with praise. Lovers praising their beloved, like Romeo praising Juliet and vice versa. Readers praising their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. Except where intolerably adverse circumstances interfere, praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. And Lewis says, I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Saying things like, isn't she lovely? Stevie Wonder, right? <laughs> Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? So when the psalmist, in telling everyone to praise God, he's doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. So Lewis concludes, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. And he says, praise is the culmination of our enjoyment of anything. Think about that. We delight to praise because what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It's the culmination of our enjoyment of anything. It's almost like our joy isn't totally complete until we've expressed it somehow, which I think is fantastic to think as a, as a response to what Jesus has done. If we want to fully and truly culminate and complete our joy and our worship of what he has done, it's an outward, outflowing of praise and worship. Just like when we really enjoy a movie, we tell a lot of people, you should see it. It was so good. That is a completion of our enjoyment of it by sharing it. As a response to what Christ has done, we should be overflowing with praise and with worship. So, as we wrap up, we're almost done. Just a few practical things here at the end. How do we worship? So according to the Bible, worship God alone. That's all over the Bible. It's the first commandment if you read it back into the Ten Commandments. Our worship is for God alone. Don't ascribe undue greatness to other things in your life. Don't try worshiping angels or nature. There's plenty of places in the Bible that you'll find warnings against that. 
Worship God alone. I mean, just don't worship sports and movies and experiences and money and really good food. You can enjoy those things. You can express your enjoyment of them, but reserve that highest level of praise and worship for God alone. Uh, Worship as a response to what he has done. We talked about that. Third, worship in spirit and in truth. That's what Jesus says to the woman in Samaria. Don't bifurcate your body and your spirit when you worship like the Pharisees did. Don't make worship a purely physical act of your vocal cords and your hands. Worship first with your heart. Make it about that first and foremost. What about our bodies? What do we do with our bodies? It says in Romans 12 that you should come and present your bodies as living sacrifices. So those, those first century Jews who heard that, they were used to this idea of coming to the temple and you always bring an animal with you. And, the, and Paul here in Romans is saying, when you, when you come to God, bring your body, present it as a living sacrifice. So don't, don't bring your body to kill yourself, right? Be, it's like Isaac. Bring your body as a living sacrifice. Christ has already died. There, that's, that's done. But offer yourself, offer your life to God. And then it says at the end of that Romans 12 passage that this is a spiritual act of worship. When you bring your body and offer it, offer your life to God, that is a spiritual act. It's not, it's not divorcing your body and spirit. It's to them together. When you believe, when you come with a believing heart, your body should follow as well. So those are just a few points from, from the biblical stuff we've looked at. So now let's talk about music. Just a little bit at the end because I can't help myself. So, worship with music, Ephesians 5. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making music to the Lord with your heart. Again, there's that heart thing, right? So, music is extremely important. Many of you really enjoy music. There is something about music that just speaks to a person. Like when you tap your foot to music and you almost can't help doing it. It's because music affects us that way. It's, our brains are wired in such a way that that, that that makes sense. So, music is extremely important. Again, the psalms are full of songs. And uh, we heard from C.S. Lewis, we can hear from another extremely uh, important theologian of the, of the 20th century, uh, Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys. Music is God's voice on earth. It's true. Music is God's voice on earth. That we can, we can experience things through music that are harder to experience when there is no music with those things. So it's true. And if you read into the book of Revelation, it is a taste of eternity here on earth because in the book of Revelation, we see this depiction of every tongue, tribe, and nation standing before the throne of Jesus Christ, and they're singing. They're singing a song of worship to Jesus. So singing is extremely important. That's why we give a lot of time during our service on Sunday mornings to music. Um, it is very biblical to worship through music. But like we've, like we've seen, it's not the only way. But if you do love singing, great. Sing first with your heart. And then with your mouth, don't just sing the words because they're on the screen, but really think about them and really sing from your heart. So worship through music, but also worship without music. That's fine too. If you don't like singing, that's fine. Don't sing. It's fine. It really is. Just listen to the singing. That's fine. Listen to the music. Read the words on the screen. Spiritually worship through them. It's not, it's not about your vocal cords. It's about your heart. If you don't want to sing, you have my permission to not sing during our singing time. That's totally fine. Or if you don't like standing, that's fine too. I, I try to say it, maybe I say it once every 10 months or something. When we say let's stand and worship, feel free not to. That's fine too. The posture of your physical body is not what God cares about, remember? It's not what God cares about. God cares about the posture of your heart, the posture of your spirit. That's what matters. 
So you can worship without singing. You can worship without standing. You can worship through giving to the gospel, giving to the work that the gospel does. Here at Hiawatha Church or other places as well, giving of your finances is an act of worship because it's putting God in a place of worth in your life. Money is important in your life. When you give money to the work of the gospel in a, in a church or other places, that is an act of worship. Reading scripture with a thankful heart, spending time in prayer, that's worship. Teaching your children the Bible, teaching them how to pray, that's worship. It's demonstrating to your children that it's worth it to take time before you eat or time before you go to bed or time when you're driving in the car to say a prayer, to remember a Bible verse that they learned in their class. It's worth it to carve time out of your day to do that. Embodying the gospel in myriad of ways throughout your day, that's worship. It's demonstrating the worth of Jesus in your life, what he has done for you, and worshiping out of a response. So if you enjoy something, like Lewis was saying, if you enjoy something, you make time for it. If you ever wonder, like, what is really important in my life? Just look at your calendar and how you spend it. You will make time for the things that you enjoy, but if you truly value something, not just enjoy, but really truly value something, it just becomes part of who you are. You don't even have to carve out time for that. It becomes part of who you are. So if you truly value Jesus Christ in your life, that he has a lot of worth, it should become part of who you are. Something you don't have to necessarily make a lot of time for. It's just part of your life every day. So in conclusion, a few things that I'll leave you with. Broaden the scope of what worship is to you. Broaden your idea of worship. Beyond just music, a lot of times when you're, when you're visiting churches, you're moving to a new town or something, you're visiting churches, <clears throat> you kind of boil down Sunday services into preaching and worship. Yeah, I, I kind of like the preaching, but I really like the worship. Ah, the worship was eh, okay, but the preaching was really good. But really, I think what you mean is the music, not necessarily the worship. You mean like the band is really good, or eh, the band's not that great. Um, but broaden your idea a little bit when you talk about worship, especially in a church setting. When you visit a church, are they showing the worth of Jesus Christ in that church by what they're doing on a Sunday morning? That's the question you should be asking. Worship is a lot more than just the music or the band. Second, see worship as the culmination of the joy found in the gospel. That response, just like the Israelites turn around and they see their enemies just destroyed in front of them, they didn't do anything, and they're, they just start singing and dancing. They can't help themselves. See worship as that culmination of the joy that's, been, that's found in the gospel and just an outworking, a response to that. And then finally, I want to read from 1 Peter 2 before I give us our last conclusion point here because this is fantastic. From 1 Peter 2. As you come to him, speaking of Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, because he was, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones, like Jesus, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are a people of his own possession. Why? Why did he do this for us? Why has he made us his own? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So look to Jesus Christ and just bask in the splendor of his holiness, the beauty of his perfection, and let that splendor and beauty move your spirit to worship him. Today, right now, through the last song that we're going to sing, but every day, through all the ways that you live your life, 
Proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light of his holiness and perfection. Let's pray.